saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that you speak to us through your word. So today, as we read this text that maybe is um, misunderstood or sometimes confusing for us, I pray that you would speak to us mightily and that your spirit would move in our hearts and begin to reveal to us that we are a people who are addicted to our own self-rule. We are a people that want to govern ourselves and rule ourselves, but God, we need to be broken of our sin and, and made to lean upon you and on your grace. So God, I pray that today we would be able to um, see you and experience you anew and see what you have done for us as a shared story of all of us believers, whether we are from Redeemer Amarillo or from Redeemer Pampa. God, I pray that we would see that we have a shared story that is written and authored by you. God, we love you. We bless you. Do you stand and pray? Amen. Amen. My name is Andrew. Uh, I am from Redeemer in Amarillo. I'm the youth minister there. And I've been on staff there for about two years. Before that, I was a public school teacher. I taught at Paladero High School in Amarillo for five years. I was a band director, so anything that happened in halftime of football games, that was partially my fault. And so uh, I was a band director there for about five years and came on staff at Redeemer a couple years ago after serving with the youth ministry there for a little while. And, and as our group began to grow, there's just a need for um, someone to kind of take that over. And that was something I was already doing, and so I was happy to do that. My wife is here with me. Her name's Kelsey, um, and, and our, our new son, Jay. James. He's three months old, and so um, he is just now getting to sleep through the night, so we're really blessed. He's doing really good, and so, uh, but we are super glad to be here. I've been at camp, youth camp, this whole week. I got back last night from youth camp, and before I went to youth camp, da- uh, David Ritchie in Amarillo said, hey, Redeemer Pampa needs somebody to fill in for Jeremy on July 15th, and I was like, hey, that's the day I get back from camp, but I really want to go because I've heard so many good things about what God is doing here at Redeemer Pampa and through your congregation, and so I wanted to come and just experience your church and, and be a part of it and get to worship with you and to get to meet some of you and get to um, share in some of the blessings that are going on here, and I was really excited to come and be a part of that. Also, I've known Jeremy for like, I think, three or four years now, and I thought this was a really great opportunity for me to see Jeremy without a hat on. I've never seen Jeremy without a hat on, and so I thought, maybe this will be the opportunity I'll actually get to see Jeremy without a baseball cap on. So I I thought that was too much of an opportunity to pass up, so I wanted to be here just to at least see that, and so my wish was granted. I feel like I'm really getting blessed this morning by getting to see that, and so 
But I am super glad to be here. Last spring at Redeemer in Amarillo, I was a part of a, uh, a men's group. We were reading through this book together, a book called The Confessions by St. Augustine. And, and this is a really old book. And the, the cool thing about this really old book is that me and a bunch of other guys were reading it, guys younger than me, college students. And then we had guys that were, you know, have uh, you know, big families. We had guys in their 40s and 50s. We had guys all the way up to their 70s that were meeting on a Monday morning, reading through this book together. And the interesting thing about this book that was written almost 1,500 years ago is that Augustine is super honest about his life, and he tells stories that are extremely, extremely relatable. So as we read through this book, we'd have a story that Augustine would tell, and the 70-year-old guy in our group would be like, hey, I did that when I was young too. And then we'd have a 20-year-old guy that was in college like, hey, me too. And we would sit there and talk forever about these stories that we share, these shared histories. And these things are extremely powerful. Sharing our stories and, and having shared histories with one another is an extremely powerful practice to take place in. That's why we do gospel communities here at Redeemer Pampa or community groups in Amarillo. We want to get together and share stories together. And there is no story that is more powerful that's shared between us and amongst us than what God has done for us. And so today as we look at this story, I pray that we would not just see a really great Bible story, but that we'd actually see a shared history that we have with one another. That we would see something that is extremely profound and valuable, and that is what God has done for each one of us. And so this is not a story that, that we just share with Jacob, but that it's a story that we share with Christians past, present, and future, and we get to see, see the beauty of what God is doing through that. So let's go ahead and dive in today, and if you would, look at the beginning of our text. We're in Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 22. And in, in this section, we have a man, we find a man who is uh, very distressed, very agitated. Jacob has isolated himself across a river from his family and his possessions, and he stands on the opposite shore from them alone. And there's really good reason for this. There's a good reason for this, that Jacob's chickens have come home to roost, so to speak. Jacob is this extremely deceitful character in the Bible. We see him uh, swindling his brother, his twin brother Esau, from his birthright by by. Um, giving him a bowl of soup, right? S- uh, swapping out a bowl of soup. And we also see later he disguises himself as his older brother to fool his visually impaired father who is dying and on his deathbed. So in the direct aftermath of some of these shenanigans that, that, um, that Jacob is involved in, and the direct aftermath of Jacob's betrayal, the Bible gives us Esau's reaction in Genesis chapter 27, verse 35. This is what Esau says about his brother Jacob. He says, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now, behold, he has taken away my blessing. And if you continue on down in chapter 27, verse 41, Esau says, Esau, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so, Jacob, knowing that his brother has murderous intent in his heart, escapes and goes to his uncle Laban's house, which turns out to be, of a, character, or turns out to be a character-building experience for Jacob. He goes there and he meets this beautiful young daughter of Laban named Rebekah, and he decides that he wants to marry her. And so he goes to Laban and says, hey, I want to marry your daughter. And Laban says, great, if you want to marry my daughter, you need to work for me for seven years in the field. So Jacob uh, embarks on what I guess could be one of his few honest endeavors in his life, and he works for seven years. And at the end of that seven years, he is rewarded with the hand of Laban's daughter, Leah, instead of Rachel. 
He gets the old switcheroo pulled on him, right? And, and he goes to, to Laban. He says, hey, what's the deal? I wanted to marry Rachel. And Laban's like, yeah, well, in my part of the, the country, in my area, in my neck of the woods, when you want to marry one of my daughters, you have to marry the first one, the oldest one first, and then you can have the younger one. So Jacob agrees and works for another seven years for Laban and is able to take his daughter Rachel in marriage too. So now he has two wives, and he goes off in, on his own, and he becomes a very successful man, becomes very wealthy, and things are going extremely well for Jacob until he finds out that his brother is headed his way with 400 plus men, which brings us to our text today, Genesis chapter 32. And verse, 30, uh, verse 7 of chapter 32 tells us that Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed at this news. Jacob is a fearful of Esau. He's coming to exact vengeance for stealing his birthright and his blessing. So in an attempt to appease his brother, Jacob begins sending gifts and livestock and crops and money ahead of him to make his brother happy, to maybe assuage his brother's anger. See, Jacob realizes that there is a cost that must be paid for sin. But the thing that Jacob doesn't understand, he doesn't, clearly doesn't know who this must be paid to. Nevertheless, Jacob's offerings of goats and sheep and money do not slow down Esau from coming to see his brother. So Genesis chapter 32, verse 24, paints a picture of a man who is afraid for his life. He is deeply distressed. He is nervously awaiting the arrival of his brother. And so this is the context for, which I want, uh, for our story, and I want to outline this story in three different sections. I want to outline it in three different sections. One will be God wrestles with Jacob. Two is that God breaks Jacob, and three is that God blesses Jacob. So we'll start out with God wrestles Jacob, and then God breaks Jacob, and then God blesses Jacob. So God wrestles Jacob. Genesis chapter 32, verse 24. It says, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So alone and in the dark desert, in his darkest hour, Jacob fears for his life. When all of a sudden he feels a hand reach forward from the darkness and seize him. This is, in Jacob's estimation, a clearly powerful hand. And the scriptures plunge us into Jacob's perspective as he perceives this antagonist to be a man, possibly uh, an assassin sent by Esau. Maybe a bandit who wants to take the last few remaining um, things that Jacob owns in his life for himself. Or maybe it's his brother Esau. But the benefit of you and I being the reader is that we can skip ahead and look at verse 30 and see that Jacob clearly identifies this man as God. And here I want to make a distinction real quick for us. I want to make the distinction between Jacob wrestling God and God wrestling Jacob because I think it is important that we notice who is the subject and who is the object. Who is doing the action and who is receiving the action. Notice verse 24 tells us that a man wrestled with him. A man wrestled with Jacob. God initiates this match. God comes to Jacob in his darkest night. It is not, God that, or not Jacob that finds God and grapples with him and, 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 and wrestles him into submission until he is blessed, but rather it is God who met Jacob there that dark night. It's God that seized Jacob when he was at his lowest, at an end to himself, when he could do no more to atone for his sin. And though he cannot see the man, he... Uh, and he, and his, his identity is a mystery to Jacob. The man's purpose seems clear to Jacob, right? Jacob is not confused about what this man is there to do. He understands what that man is there to do. See, for all Jacob knows, this adversary is a man sent to kill him. 
After all, Jacob, being who he is, being a man who is constantly deceiving other people, constantly tricking other people, constantly fooling other people, he would have many ad- uh, adversaries, naturally, right? Whether it's his uncle or his brother or even his father, he would have made for himself many enemies. But Jacob's adversary this night is God. In fact, though Jacob's actions have earned him many enemies, Jacob's greatest adversary was God himself. Theologian James Montgomery Boyce tells us this. He sheds some light on what may be a confusing thought for us. He says, to Jacob, God was no enemy. God was a benign, a friendly, heavenly father to whom he could turn to when things got rough, but ignore when he wanted to order his own life and formulate his own plans. There was nothing to fear from God, but how wrong Jacob was. And this is true for all of us. For many of us, we see God as this friendly, benign uh, being who we can go to when things get rough, but whenever things are okay, we want to order our own lives. We want to control our own lives. We want to be in authority over our own lives. We want to be God. But this this text shows us something different. Jacob is standing alone in the dark, no doubt looking at his life through the rearview mirror and seeing the destruction and the wreckage that his sin has caused. And while Jacob is concerned that his brother desires vengeance, he's not surprised by this. This is not a surprising turn of events. He knows his brother is his enemy. But what is surprising to Jacob is that in all of his life of struggle and sin and deceit, it is God that who he has made his enemy. And this is true for us, right? We don't see that in our sin that we are actually sinning against the most high God of the universe, the holy God of the universe, that it's our sin that is actually offensive to him, that has placed us in hostility and rebellion against him. We don't see that if we hate our brother and cannot forgive, it's likely that we don't fully understand the grace of God. If we look at pornography, it's likely that we do not fully understand that God has made every person, even that man or the woman on the screen that we're looking at, in his image. If we disobey or dishonor our parents, it's because we probably don't understand that all authority has been put there in place by God, and he knows what we need more than we do. See, beneath our sin is usually another layer of something that we don't like to look at, which is a sin against God. The sins that we commit are merely symptoms of a deeper reality. In the same way, when we have a fever or a cough or any nose, whatever it is, we can see that there's something wrong with our physical body. We know that we have a sickness that we need to address. But when we look at our spiritual lives, we see the sin in our lives. These ought to be evidences and signs of an uncomfortable truth and reality. That in our sinfulness, we are adversaries of the holy God of the Bible. Our low view of others that God has made in his image our low view of God's law actually reflect our low view of God himself. And King David knew this. After he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and, and murdered her husband, in Psalm chapter 51, verse 4, he says this himself. He says, Against you, God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If only Jacob knew what David knew in that text. If only we knew what David knew, that while we may have created many adversaries in our lives, while we may have sinned against people in our lives, because of our sin, our greatest adversary is who we least expect. It's God himself. And this is a part of the reason why this story is so misunderstood. Many people, including myself, we read this text about Jacob wrestling with God, and we, we see it and we conveniently forget that our sin primarily offends God. And we see this as a story of how we are to force God to give up and finally bless us. 
Theologian A.W. Pink says this, though. He clears up our, our, our reading of this. He says, Jacob was not wrestling with this man to obtain a blessing. Instead, the man was wrestling with Jacob to gain some object from him. As to what this object is, most commentators are agreed. It was to reduce Jacob to a sense of nothingness, to cause him to see what a poor and helpless and worthless creature he was. It was to teach us through him that in recognized weakness lies our strength. That's what's happening here. Is God is trying to teach us through Jacob that in recognizing our weakness, in recognizing our sin against God, that's where true strength lies. Because it's when we see our sinfulness, when we see our need, that's when we truly begin to rely on Jesus. We see our need for a Savior. So at its center, this, sto- this story is not a story of man's triumph over God. It's a story of God's triumph over man, right? It's a story of God's ability to transform and use what is broken and sinful, It is in our brokenness, when we come to an end of what we are able to do, when we see our inability, when we see the depth and the wretchedness of our sin and our need for a Savior, that is when God begins to use us. So God intentionally uses weak and broken creatures to accomplish his glorious purposes, and many times it's him who weakens us, right? And sometimes it's him who breaks us. So let's get to point number two, that God breaks Jacob. Look at verse 24, Genesis chapter 32. It says, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, if you look at me, you probably see that I'm not a person that is uh, very adept at endurance sports, running, or anything like that. Like, I went to a kid's wrestling match a little while ago, and it was exhausting to watch. Like, wrestling and combat sports are something that are, are so grueling and hard to do, right? And you can imagine... That, that what is going on in this text, that Jacob wrestling with God is something that is extremely exhausting, right? But God and Jacob wrestle for hours on end, leaning against one another, right? Positioning themselves in an advantageous way, countering the other, thinking about what the other one's going to do next, what their next move is, trying to keep themselves from becoming vulnerable in any, in any way, right? Resisting each movement with what can only be described as incredible determination on Jacob's part. Jacob is resolved to prevail against his opponent, God. In our sin, we have this incredible determination to order our own lives, to formulate our own plans, to rule over ourselves. Sometimes we will wrestle and fight against God's rule in our lives for as long as we possibly can. In fact, many of us can look back on our lives and see incredibly long seasons of resistance against God as we stubbornly refuse to bend to his will and his commands. It makes me think of those stories of, you know, like the, the car that, is, that has crushed a child and the mother is able to summon this inordinate amount of strength to remove the car from the child because she is so intensely motivated, in this case by love, right? In the same way, I think you and I, we're capable of summoning inordinate amounts of strength and determination in order to preserve ourselves the way that we are. Only willing to change if it's our prerogative. We desperately want to preserve and protect our autonomy. There are many times when I've been caught in sin and, and my first reaction is to fight, to deny, to get defensive, right? Even when I know I'm wrong. Why is that? It's because I love me the way I am. In my sinfulness, I refuse to bend to God's will at times. And it seems that with some measure of success, right? 
Jacob is resisting God. That's what's interesting about this text. It's so strange that Jacob is actually seems like he's resisting God, fighting him, refusing to allow God to impose his will upon us. James Montgomery Boyce continues. He tells us that sin hangs on, that this is the nature of sin. It hangs on. It refuses to give up. And this is one of the reasons why God must become our fierce antagonist, to overpower self and to destroy sin's power in our lives. Well, in our sin, we are capable of some measure of success. It is God's grace that is able to overpower self and destroy sin, as Boyce says. And while Jacob is incredibly aware that he was wrestling someone what he, and that he may have been winning for a, a small moment, what he has yet to realize is that God's grace does not lose battles. God's grace does not lose battles ever. Theologian R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. God's grace is so powerful that it has the, the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. Right? Look at verse 25. It says, When the man saw that he could not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. This is strange to us, right? Because Jacob is wrestling God, and he seems to be winning, right? But the moment of premature celebration passes quickly as the man reaches down and touches Jacob's hip and completely disables him. This, is, this opponent has done with a touch, has done this with a touch, a touch that would seem to indicate that this man is more than what he appears. As Jacob falls to the ground, he is probably piecing together the puzzle of this man's identity. God's magnificent grace in the form of a crippling touch from his hand has reduced Jacob down to a wounded heap, clinging to the legs of a mysterious man. And this is where we see the, the beautiful picture of the gospel, that a prideful, deceitful, resourceful, successful man like Jacob is now broken. And I think that's kind of what Billy Graham meant when he used to say that, that all ground is level at the foot of the cross. All, all ground is level at the foot of the cross. All who experience God's beautiful, crippling, amazing grace stand on even ground before the holy God of the universe. No matter your sin, no matter your background, no matter what form your disbelief takes, the grace of God breaks us all the same. We begin to see that sin has infected and tainted every part of our being. And it is in this humble state that Jacob asks God for the only thing that he does not have in this world. The only thing that even matters anymore to him. The thing that he needs most desperately, which is the blessing of God. So this is point number three, God blesses Jacob. If you would look with me at Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 26 now. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So the match is over. And the end is Jacob clinging to the legs of the, one, of the one who triumphed over him. See, this is an incredible image for us. A picture of a man who has been thoroughly broken. Jacob, 
A man who clung to the heel of his brother in order to steal his blessing is now clinging to the feet of God, fully surrendered to him. And in keeping with Jacob's moral change, God bestows on Jacob a new name. This is something that we see happen in the Bible on a few different instances, you know, Abram and, and Saul. When they encounter the grace of God, they're transformed into new creatures, a new man with a new name that reflects his new identity. Right, it reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. tells us that if, there, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Right? Jacob has been reconciled to God through God. This is the good news of the gospel. This new name, Israel, it tells a story of the day that Jacob's life changed, the day when God wrestled with Jacob and God broke Jacob and God blessed Jacob and Jacob prevailed. See, when we wrestle with God and he wins, so do we. So do we. And it's so often that when God breaks us, he does so with the intention to remove that territorial, defensive, self-loving part of us so that he can bless us and make us new. See, Jacob's loss is actually his victory. As he surrenders himself to God, he wins by losing. In Jacob's weakness, he has found new strength. And with his pride and his self-confidence broken with just a touch, Jacob becomes truly strong as he leans on God for strength, knowing that in his weakness, God is strong. And so as Christians, this is our shared history. We can say that where we were once lost in sin, adversaries of God, and had he not broken us, we would still be wrestling against him forever. But praise God, right? He broke me of my shame, and he broke me of my sinfulness. He made me a new creation, gave me a new name. And as we look out across, you know, even this room, Redeemer Amarillo, any of the Redeemer churches, we see that we share this powerful and incredible story of God's grace with one another. But before we end, one of my favorite parts of this text is actually in verse 30. If you would look there with me in verse 30. So, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel limping because of his hip. See, Jacob leaves having been blessed by God with a new name, with a new identity. But he also leaves this place with a limp, right, hobbling as an evidence of God's grace in his life. And this limp is not just something that he can walk off. Like, he's not just going to, like, it's not going to feel better tomorrow or the next week or, or maybe a couple months later. The scriptures tell us that Jacob walked with this limp for the rest of his life. In fact, we see a glimpse of the last moments of Jacob's life in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. It tells us this. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. On his last day, still leaning over his staff as he worshiped. We sang that song earlier and the words were, and while I draw my final breath, I rest upon his grace. That's what Jacob's doing. A man who is always deceitful, always trying to get ahead, always caring for himself, trying to preserve himself. Look at him now. He's a man leaning on his staff, blessing his children, worshiping God as he leaves this earth. So, Redeemer, I pray that this would be our shared story with one another. That though we were once adversaries of God because of our sin, 
God came in and he wrestled against us. And though we resisted him mightily, trying to preserve our own selfish kingdoms, we see that though we lost, we are victorious. That though we are so very weak, he makes us actually strong, gives us a new name, so that on our last day, our limp serves as a reminder of the crushing grace of God in our life as we worship him and we limp onward into eternity. Amen? Amen. Well, before we go into a time of worship, there will be some prayer offered for you in the back. If you're a person who feels like you're wrestling against God, that you're trying to preserve your own kingdoms for yourself, that you are resistant against him, pray with someone. Pray with someone this morning. Let someone pray over you. Come before God today. So in a moment, we'll be able to do that. But let me pray for us and as we go into a time of worship. Father God, we are so grateful to you. We are so grateful that you, in your kindness, see us in our rebellion and are not content to leave us that way, but that you actually approach us and come near to us in hopes of changing us and making us new creations. God, we confess that we love ourselves the way we are at times. We like to rule over our own hearts and be the kings of our own hearts. But God, if we're even more honest, we see the fact that we are bad kings, that we are nowhere near the king that you are. And so God, I pray today that we would come before you and confess our sin before you, and that we would allow you to be the Lord and the master of our lives.